Okay, so we're reading from Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Seven hundred days. It's been seven hundred days since I was last up here teaching. <laughs> it feels good. I uh, I want to hug you all. I want to. Uh, this may be inappropriate. I want to mark my territory. You know, I seven hundred days, and I am so excited and so grateful and so glad to be back. Um. We've been in Ezekiel since January, and then uh, we had Easter, and Ezekiel is this fun book. In fact, it was a wild ride, right? Um, Maybe some of us hadn't even read it, or if we read it, we didn't understand it. And so uh, every week we kind of showed up and we said, what is next? What's going to happen? And then Easter came. And you showed up, even though you knew what happened next. And so for that, uh, I want to say thank you. Um, And we show up for Easter because we know that we need to be reminded of the great truth of the resurrection. And so today, my passage is not going to be one that's new for you. But it's going to be a great reminder of how we need to live our lives. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of insight. Uh, I've had 700 days to think about this, Uh, which is, by the way, it's it's one year and 10 months if you're doing, um, you know, math, new math, right? Uh, And so uh, in this, uh, I had been kind of chasing after my life motto, Um, being, being a Zellner, being um, the last name of Z, uh, the model that we had growing up um, was a pretty generic one. But uh, it says, so, <laughs> so the last will be first and the first shall be last. And see, I know this because every time in school when they sit you in alphabetical order, I know exactly where I'm going to be sitting. It's the one by the door. <laughs> I know 
as a good Christian that God, when he comes back, he's going to call reverse alphabetical order. (laughs) I just know this. And so when you read this scripture, you may say to yourself, oh yeah, I've heard that my whole life. I know what it is. And you might think about it in kind of an elementary school type way. Like, this is the verse that you use to justify going to the back of the line instead of trying to rush for the drinking fountain. Or if you were like me, this was the verse that I used when things didn't go well during sports, and I just said, you know, I'm going to keep trying. Or maybe it's this kind of modified Christian work ethic where you just persevere, 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 and then one day you'll be a millionaire. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we apply to this verse. And so... Uh, when I hit 30 and I recognized that I was the same age as Jesus, these verses started coming back and haunting me in a way that I'm like, I don't think I realize I know what this truly means. I think there's more here and I think I might be missing the picture. And so, uh, Matthew 20 is this key passage where Jesus unpacks this major theme. In fact, uh, this theme and the one in Matthew 20 that we're going to talk about today is foundational to how we live our Christian life. And so uh, we may be saying, yep, I know the story. I know how it goes. But I really want to encourage you to open your heart, listen to the spirit, look at the words of the scripture and reevaluate what God is calling you into and how he wants you to live your life. Um, So. What does it mean? Is it more than a pithy saying or a bumper sticker? I think it is. So this Matthew 20, 20 story, I see myself in this story. Now, it might be because I have a brother and it might be because we're sons of Z, like they're sons of Zebedee. Or maybe it's because I see my mom, you know, kind of like this mom, this great ambition for her sons to succeed. But I also hope that you see yourself in this story somewhere. Maybe you're the well-intentioned mother, or maybe you were uh, these two disciples, or maybe you're the other disciples that were really not happy when these guys went forward and tried to get the best seats in the house. And so, uh, on first read, it looks like this mom who wants what is best for her kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's get that off there. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want what's best for their children? You put your kids in sports. You want them to do well. If they're not doing in school, you get tutors. If they're sick, you take them to the doctor. Uh, At this point, uh, kids are in 7th and 8th grade, and you're thinking, what college are they going to get into, and how do I get them there? In fact, uh, if you're financially responsible, all the things say, hey, start saving now for uh, college, start saving now for a wedding, and I would say start saving now for therapy if if you're putting all that on your children. So (laughs) this story really is about missing the point. That's what the story is about. So our scripture starts off with the simple word called then, then, the mother. And so Jesus, up until that point, had been coming and preaching a message 
And a lot of times he, shout, he, he shrouded this last shall be first and the first shall be last in some kind of parable. But Jesus three times, up to the, right up to this point, did something very plainly. He spoke to his disciples and he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and then I'm going to rise again. I'm going to Jerusalem to die and then I'm going to rise again. Three times he said that. Three times. They completely missed the point. In fact, let me show you. We'll kind of cruise through these. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it for you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Clue on this right here. For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. Matthew 17. When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. A short time later in Matthew 18, 1, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Hey, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And then the scripture right before our passage today, Matthew 20, 17 through 19 This is right before our then. And as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is very clear on what is going to happen. He taught it repeatedly, and they missed it. And if they missed it, maybe we miss it too. If Jesus repeated it, it's worth repeating. I think... There's implications in Resurrection Sunday with that, right? We don't fully grasp, I don't fully grasp, just how the resurrection changes everything. It affects how I live my life. It affects how I think. It affects how I act. It affects how I look at people. It affects how I love. It affects what I'm afraid of or not afraid of. It affects everything. I also think that we misunderstand what it means when he says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So all this happens. And then this is our passage. And what happens basically is there's a story and an encounter of Jesus, these two disciples and their mother. And then 
Jesus has this great teaching opportunity where he pulls the disciples together and he says, let me speak clearly about what I mean. So then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And so we find in the book of Mark that the mom's name is Salome. Uh, if I was her son, I would have definitely called her Salome, my homie. You know, um, <laughs> the boys, the disciples here, uh, their names are James and John. They are part of Jesus' inner three with Peter. And the mom comes to Jesus and kneels out of love and respect for Jesus. I mean, she knows to the best of her ability exactly who he is and she is a follower of christ and she believes that he is going to have a kingdom in fact uh maybe that's just where all of them were at at the point at this point um, because it's a week before easter has happened it's right before the triumphal entry of palm sunday they are on the eve of what they feel is greatness where the work that they've been doing following jesus for these three years is finally paying off. And so they feel it. It's palpable. And so what do they do? Well, they are concerned with power and prestige. They are concerned with their seat at the table, so to speak. Because you got to ask, what is behind this request? Well, They want to continue to stay close to Christ. They want to be at his seat, but they don't want to share it. I mean, there's two brothers, and and Peter's not related to them. There's only a right and left. There's only room for one at each side. So, hey, can Peter get kicked to the back of the bus? And, And these guys are smart. These guys are really smart. Because I think they've been listening very closely to Jesus, and they figured out a formula for success. Okay? Now, today we have a ton of leadership books, and and they derive a lot of principles from the Bible. Because it's true. But you can still miss the heart of those principles and live them out. So, here's my hypothesis on what I think they were thinking Earlier in Matthew nineteen fourteen, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven belongs to children such as these. Oh, the disciples are not that old. They could be, you know, they're, they're teenagers. Hey, John, let's go get our mom. Let's have her ask and just remind Jesus that, that we've been listening. And, and let's, he'll just see that uh, we get his teaching on children are going to inherit the kingdom of God. They ask for thrones. Now, that's audacious, except for the fact that Jesus had just spoken about they will have 12 thrones with him. 
Uh, we find that in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. And so, natural conclusion is this. If there's 12 thrones and there's 12 disciples, hey, Jesus, just make sure we're at the right and left hand of you. That's ambition. Now, ambition is one of those tricky things. It's not inherently evil. It's not always good. It just depends on what you do with it and your motivation. Ambition is good when we are seeking to glorify God in it. When God gets the glory and that is our purpose, then ambition is good. Because it's either out of us doing it for his glory or it's for our own glory. And if we're feeding our own glory, then that is our flesh and that is taking us away from the Jesus that we love and serve and pledged our lives to. So these guys are smart. But this text has just spoken about Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And then you enter in this kind of bonehead text story of these young men trying to get ahead in life and they ask for the best seat at the table. It's intentionally absurd. You're supposed to read it and go, what were they thinking? What are we thinking? How many times do we hear a truth in the scripture and then we immediately forget and we start thinking about our own problems and our own worries and our own ambitions and then that takes us down a totally entirely different path. Jesus' offer is discipleship. And there's a cost to that discipleship. His cost is, hey, follow me. Come and die. And so, what ends up happening is he just says simply and plainly, and I think with the greatest of compassion, you don't know what you're asking. Can you really drink this cup? And this cup that he's referring to is the wrath that's going to be poured out on him, uh, the crucifixion that's going to happen in just over a week. That's what he's referring to. He knows what's coming. They know what's, they, they know what's coming too if they had listened. And so they energetically... And emphatically just say, yes, yes, we can, boss. You know, they want to be, it's like they're in an interview and they want to be hired because they want the prestige position. They want the benefits. They want the Roth. They want the vacation package. They're just saying yes. They don't know. And the other disciples. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Of course they were indignant. They all wanted the same thing. James and John beat us to it. Ah, man. Indignant, in case you haven't read a Webster's Dictionary lately. Feeling characterized by or expressing strong displeasure at something considered unjust, offensive, insulting, or base. 
not worthy. They're indignant because they're like, no, we deserve that. We deserve to be at his right and his left hand. The other disciples were just as full as pride as everyone else. And which just casts a totally different light on the disciples. I mean, I think of these guys as for three years going around singing Kumbaya songs at, around the fire and there's fish on a stick, you know. And, and they just love each other, you know. They've all given up promising careers as fishermen, right? Tax collectors. And they're following Jesus, and they're, list, they're sitting at the feet of Jesus every day. And yet their human side totally comes out at this time. And we see that they struggle with the same things that we struggle with. And so you see the very human self-focused side of them. So what does Jesus do? Uh, in the beauty of who Jesus is... He turns this awkward family situation into a beautiful teaching moment. And this right here is one of the clearest spots in Scripture that I have found that explains this last shall be first, first shall be last way of life. And so here's what he says. Verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First thing he does, verse 25, he calls them together. He calls them back into a place of unity. The ESV says that he draws them to himself. Now, that's a beautiful picture, right? When we're self-focused and we're mad at other people, focused on Christ. Come around Christ. He unifies them. And then he makes an observation also in 25. He says, this is not a judgment. This is an observation. You know the rulers above you they lord it over you they abuse their power and you don't even like it it's really this this kind of uh that's yeah top-down approach right there this is the way the world works it's top-down you don't like it he's talking to the disciples not so with you this is not how we do things as a family it's going to be different. And so he speaks into them. Even though they're desiring, they want to overthrow, and they want to be on the king, the, they want to be in the palace, they want to be on top. He's saying, look, don't just overthrow one structure to replace it, and then you become that guy. There is a new way, and this is the way of my kingdom. And the way of my kingdom looks like this. We're at the bottom. We're going to forge a new path. This is a new kingdom. And so, whoever, he's talking about the universal whoever, the church, you, me, if you want to be great, be a servant. The word servant here is table waiter. So imagine if I had a towel, hello, I'm at your service. 
except for today, if you are a table waiter, that's like a noble, that's a noble job, and people make a lot of money at that. Back then, the disciples heard this, and they're like, what? Oh, you want us to do what? That? That's beneath us. I would never do that. And Jesus goes, yeah, I want to lower, lower yourself. In fact, lower yourself still because I want you to be a slave. I want you to consider yourself as having no rights. You mean, what? You mean I have no rights? Yeah. I have freed you to become a slave to other people. Uh, here, Jesus then defi- redefines greatness in the kingdom. You want to be great, right? Okay. Here's the way to greatness. And for the disciples up until this point, they had just thought greatness is all about having honors and glory and privilege. For us today, it's about having a sense of safety and it's for me it's how people look at me how do they view me if if people are like hey ryan's fill in the blank then i'm like yeah all right i have status i have privilege um a lot of us we're focused on money or our work or our families and if we can get those kind of together then we feel like that's greatness i have it all together Mark's rendition of this in Mark 10:44 he says whoever wants to be great must be the slave to all the whole world literally christians are supposed to be slaves to the whole world man I don't think that we look at the church and are following Jesus in that way. I think the world in in a lot of ways has crept into our hearts and is, is trying to turn that back upside down and say, no, you fit in a power structure and you can be somebody. Now, when Jesus says be slave to the whole world... I mean, we kind of get that, right? In our families, we're serving one another. Uh, in the, the body of Christ, we like to serve one another. But he goes, no, it doesn't stop there. Yeah, of course we serve one another. Of course you serve your family. But it does not end with somebody who just believes the same things as you. This is a consistent, across-the-board way of life. Um, so this idea of slavery versus freedom and the fact that Jesus has freed us to be slaves is a hard one to grasp. And so I have a poor analogy, and I'm going to bring you up Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know if it's Pirates 1 or 4 or 5. I think it's all of them. But I think, and there's a lot of movies that fall into this category, they have a jail scene where your main character gets locked up in a prison, and so they're trying to get out. Who doesn't want to be in prison? Uh, and so maybe they trick the dog or whatever. They, they get out. And the person with the key 
gets out and they're free. But in almost every single scene, they delay their freedom because there are other people that are enslaved. There are other people that are imprisoned. And they don't just bail. No. They go and they unlock all the other doors. And they spend their freedom, those brief moments of freedom, going to people who are facing the death penalty, facing hopelessness, facing malnutrition, and they're saying, come follow me. I know the way to freedom. I have the key to salvation. And so I think this is helpful in how we look um, to our purpose in life. And then Jesus goes deeper still. Verse 28, as the master models, the disciple follows. He just is saying, look, I'm doing this right now. I'm going to die. This is a classic uh, Jewish how much more argument. Look, if I'm your master and I'm your ultimate master and I'm the king of the universe and I'm willing to do this stuff, you were nothing when I found you. You can do it too. And the disciples are listening and going, okay, I, all right. And so Jesus continues to demonstrate it. He continues to repeat it. And they continue to kindly get it. But I would say that they did not get it until they finally saw the resurrected Lord and the Holy Spirit had come into them. Which, amen, that is the same position. We have the Holy Spirit. And so I have hope for us. And I have hope for us as we lean into this that Jesus will do a mighty work in us. But it is worth repeating. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be our slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, On your bulletins, there's a quote that says, The way to greatness in Christ's kingdom is humility and devotedness to one another. Another way to say it is true greatness comes through following Jesus' way of servanthood and sacrifice and no other way. This should challenge us and our church. We, when I describe our church to people, I just, it's really easy. It's like, this is a church of leaders. Absolutely, without a doubt. There's so many people here in charge of others, or you own your company, or you're a teacher and you have 30 kids in your classroom or, or more. We are a church of leaders. My conviction is this Are we a church of servants? That's my challenge. Are we a church? Of servants. This passage started with family. And uh, something interesting about family is this, is we understand sacrifice the most in our family. As soon as you have a kid, you're just like, you're wiping booties, right? Like you're doing things that you would never do to anybody else. <laughs> and you're finally doing it. You're like, you care for them so much. Uh, yesterday, my youngest dropped a whole roll of toilet paper into the bowl. And she gets me, and I'm telling you, if you did that, I'm making you fish it out. (laughs) 
But you know what? We fished it out together. And so, <laughs> and so my question is, is what if you could treat the world like you humbly serve your family and your kids? Because this is about a heart posture. I'm not asking CEOs to step down and become table waiters or slaves. But in our hearts, we have to have this upside down kingdom where we're looking to serve. Safe families is a great example of that. Because we're not asking you to fix the family. We're asking you to serve the family. The kid's going to come in and you're just going to love them like you love your own kids. You're not going to fix that mom, that single mom that's going through a hard time. We're asking you to love that single mom and serve that single mom in the selfless act of watching her kids. I mean, it would be so arrogant for us to think that we could fix them in a, in a couple days' time when they have so much going on. Um, if you're a CEO or you own your own company, um, this is a heart posture Can you walk down the aisles with your employees, know them by name, know their story, grieve when they're going through hard times, understand where they're at? Can you stop by and say, hey, Fred, I know your your wife is sick and going through a lot. I just want to let you know, I've been praying for her, and I I just want to let you know, I I get it. I'm there for you. I mean, this is a simple change of how we view other people and how we make ourselves available to serve in that way. Uh, Ultimately, this is about relationships as well. It's about investing and serving the best interest of other people, which is kind of how we define discipleship here as well. Uh, Mentoring is a great model of that. I have this quote on mentoring. Mentoring is not about telling, it's about listening to the Holy Spirit, and to the life of the other. If there is desire for status or position in the eyes of others, you will surely fail, for mentoring is a servant's role. It is true that there are times of instructing, guiding, and sharing of wisdom, but mentoring is primarily about discernment and learning to recognize where God is already present and active in the heart of the other. I love that. So, If serving the world is a wild, big idea that's a little scary, and it is, um, start here. There's 300 people that we can serve right here. Build up, build that practice. Spend time with the Lord and say, God, how can I be available to serving people here? Because on one level, this story is about how easy it is to miss simple truth of what Jesus has been calling to live our lives and how we are supposed to walk daily with him. And on the other hand, it's a little bit about our human vanity. And at the end of the day, we like to make ourselves feel important. But Jesus is the answer. He saved us when we first became believers. And he's the only one that sanctifies us as we walk day by day. And so my purpose of this message is let's do a little spring cleaning. Let's spend some time in prayer seeking the Lord and going, where have idols taken over my heart? Where am I pursuing the wrong things? Where have I totally just need to come back to you and you alone and have you direct my life? And that's, that's my call. Um, 
Because the world is always going to operate the way that it does. It's going to be power. And so I, it's interesting. You guys recognize this? What's that? Star David. You've got the world's power and you've got the kingdom power. And they're in conflict. And if David needed this reminder, King David, then uh, we probably need this reminder as well. Of that we've got to choose whom this day we will serve. And how we're going to go about doing that. And so, since we can't do this on our own, we have to abide in Christ. And so, my call is that I would love for you to spend time in prayer this week. Do it in the most humble fashion possible. If you've got to sprawl out on the floor, kneel, however you want to do it. And just ask the Lord two things. What rights can I begin to lay down? And how might you be directing me to, to live a life of service? Will you pray with me? Lord, help us believe that it is better to give than receive. We have already received all the riches in Christ Jesus. May we abide in you as we see our lives for what they really are. They're yours. We are yours, Lord. Use us in this community as instruments of your grace. Use us according to your will. Lord, we love you. Increase our faith. Amen.